We come then to the, the fourth of our studies in Christian discipleship in Mark's Gospel and chapter 6, focusing in these moments in verses 7 to 13 and thinking of the subject of Christian discipleship and mission. And for many years I have been challenged by the witnessing behavior of a theological professor. Perhaps you've been challenged by the example of practice of some people that you've encountered or read about, and this has steered and guided your approach to evangelism, to witnessing, to mission. But for many years I have reflected on and thought about and try to, in some measure, emulate the, the practice of a particular theological professor. Early in his academic career, he promised God that he would witness to five people every week about Jesus. He grasped this emphasis in the Bible that disciples are to be witnesses of Jesus. He realized that in becoming a professor within a theological college in a reformed institution, he would be working most of the time, probably all of the time, with other believers and teaching students who were believers. And so to enable him to fulfill this element of the calling of a disciple, he promised the Lord that he would witness the five people every week. And how did that go, you say? Well, Sometimes he grasped the opportunity when he was on the bus traveling into his workplace. The bus would be full and someone would have to sit down beside the professor and he would grasp that opportunity and he would witness to the person about Jesus. Sometimes he took the opportunity when it arose at the supermarket till there he was face to face with another person and he would engage in conversation about Jesus. But sometimes he got to the Friday, the end of his academic week, and he hadn't spoken to any unbeliever. And this was the bit that, that really challenged me. He would just go outside his institution, out onto the street. And he would be up front with strangers coming down the street, and he would say to this man or this lady, I've made a promise to God to speak to five non-Christians every week. And I haven't fulfilled that yet. And I want to talk to you about Jesus. He understood that this is a dimension of being a disciple of Jesus that we witness to others. And how's that going for you? When Jesus called his disciples, he said, you remember in chapter one, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This was a key dimension of discipleship. When he appointed his disciples in chapter three, one of the things was that they would be with him, but also that he would send them out. And in the Gospel of Mark, so far, the disciples have been spectators. 
They've been passengers. They've been companions of Jesus. R.T. France comments on this. They have been extras rather than actors in the proclamation of the kingdom of God. But in this paragraph, their role changes. And Jesus sends these observers, these companions, out into the coalface on their own to proclaim the kingdom of God and to engage in this strand of discipleship, evangelism. They are called, in verse 30, you see, for the first time in this gospel, apostles. And the word apostles means one who is sent out, in this case, by Jesus, the representative of Jesus, taking his message into the community that he has sent them to. Jesus has been rebuffed by his hometown. He moves on. And he sends out his disciples into Galilee on this, his third tour of Galilee's towns and villages. And the final tour it will be. So there's three things that we want to think about in relation to discipleship and mission. The first is provision for our mission. Provision for our mission. This is in our first verse, verse 7. He called the twelve And began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And we see in this verse that there are two dimensions of the provision Jesus gives his disciples. One is human and the other is divine. The first provision is human. He he sent them out two by two. He provided human company For each of the disciples. He put them out in pairs. And this was a Jewish practice. According to J. Jeremiah. The the Jewish historian and writer. The Parwis principle. This was a principle. Within Judaism. And rabbinic teaching. That people should go out. On any mission in twos. And it was continued. Throughout the early church. We have it in chapter 11. 14 of Mark. And then in the book of Acts. Chapter 3, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15. And you're asking, why? Would it not be better if they'd just gone out on their own? Would they not have covered a lot more ground, visited far more villages and towns? Would much more work not have been done? Double the work, in fact, if the 12 apostles had gone out on their own. But Jesus sends them in pairs to provide moral support when they're witnessing. We find it hard. They found it hard. To provide counsel when they're making a decision. Where will they go? When will they leave? To provide complementary gifts. Each of us have strengths and weaknesses. And to provide confirmation of the message, a matter must be established, Deuteronomy 17 verse 6, by the testimony of two or three witnesses. But perhaps that's not the part that surprises you 
in this sending of the disciples. Perhaps the bit that surprises you is that he sent them at all. Here, here are men who, who are imperfect. Here are men who are failing to grasp and understand the miracles of Jesus. Here are men who are misunderstanding the, the mission of Jesus. And it's these imperfect, flawed, frail men that he sends out. Emphasizing that the kingdom of God is not dependent on us. But on the blessing and working of the Holy Spirit. But alongside of the human provision, the two by two, that there is also the divine provision. See in verse number seven, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus communicated to them this power to be able to cast out these demons. This was part of Jesus' ministry. It was a feature of what he was doing as he engaged in battle and conflict with the powers of darkness. And alongside of that human company, Jesus added this divine authority, this power over unclean demons. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12 says, Two are better than one. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Here is Jesus sending out the disciples two by two. The provision for our mission. And on a very basic level, here is a ministry that all of us can fulfill. The ministry of companionship. When a friend, when a church member, when a family member mentions a difficult appointment that they have to attend. Let's not just sympathize with them. Let's offer to go with them. Certainly I have benefited as a minister from involving elders in pastoral visitation because two are better than one. And I encourage you to be proactive in this matter also. Ask someone to go with you to a difficult appointment at the hospital, in a family meeting, in a community dispute. Don't become an unnecessary burden to others. But don't avoid the benefit of having someone else with you in difficult moments. And what is true in general in our life and experience is true in witnessing. And Jesus perceived this and sent out his apostles on this difficult task. Not on their own to flounder and fail and become discouraged and give up. But he sent them out two by two. And this precept of practice of Jesus challenges us to find ways around our natural fears of witnessing. All of us are naturally reluctant to witness in the supermarket, on the street, within our family, in our community. Find a way to witness to your work colleagues to your friends, 
to your neighbours. Perhaps the monthly guest service will be a way that you choose to get people to hear the gospel. You see a subject that you know they'll be interested in and you invite them to hear this subject. Or maybe you will invite a neighbour to Natter, knowing that they'll be warmly welcomed and cared for and hear the gospel. Perhaps you'll give them a biography of a, a Christian that you've been reading that's, that's interesting and gripping and in that way you'll be able to witness to them. Or maybe by living out your life before them, they will ask questions of you. Why don't you go there? As we love our neighbors and our unconverted friends and work colleagues and pray for them, we will find ways of witnessing to them. Because alongside of this human element, this human provision that Jesus gives, there is the divine provision. He gives us power. He gives us strength. He gives us grace and courage to speak for him and elsewhere promises us that, that we're not to worry what we will say as we attempt to witness for him. For in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give us the words that we are to say. Here is the provision for our mission. The human encouragement and companionship, but also the divine authority and power that's given to his disciples. But secondly, we have the precepts for our mission in verses 8 to 10. The Dadahi is a church instruction manual from the, the early century. And it includes instructions about mission workers. Those instructions concern the reception of mission workers by the church. For example, it states that if they ask for money, those mission workers are not true followers of Jesus. But the instructions of Jesus here in verses 8 to 10, they focus on the mission workers themselves not on the reception so much of the mission workers. And it addresses their accommodation and it addresses primarily their food and their clothing. So what instructions does Jesus give for mission? Well, he says regarding accommodation that they're to stay in the house where they first enter. They're not to, to move around, which would dishonor the host. People would ask, well, what was wrong with that house there? Were the beds too hard or was the food too scarce? Just stay in the place where you first are taken in. But the main precepts here are on food and clothing. Negatively, they're not to take bread. They're not to take money. They're not to take a knapsack. They're not to take a second tunic. And why are these negative instructions given to them and reflective in our outreach and mission work? Well, one obvious purpose is that they're to go dependent on God. They're to trust in him. There's to be no elaborate support system which is to be around them to help them on their mission. Their trust in all levels is to be on God. 
Perhaps another element is that worldly care is to be absent from their minds. They are not to be worrying, where did I leave my, my overcoat? Or, or where did I leave that bag of gold sovereigns? And their mind distracted to those things rather than focus on the mission and message that they are bringing. The positive instructions are take a staff, take sandals, take one tunic and a belt. Four items that they were to take. The sandals, the staff, the tunic, the belt. And and what is significant about this, and they are significant, but what is significant about these items? Well, well, some scholars think it's just an emphasis on asceticism and austerity. There were common philosophers and preachers known as the cynic group within the first century. And they had rules and, and regulations regarding what should be taken and shouldn't be worn. Their main emphasis was anti-authoritarianism. They were against the rich. They wanted to make a statement by their austerity. Is this what Jesus is doing? Is he against the rich and against the authority with these regulations? There's something greater in what Jesus says here. In identifying these four items, the staff and the sandals and the belt and the tunic. Jesus is, is tying it into Exodus 12, verse 11. When the people of Israel were being taken from slavery in Egypt, and on the night of the Passover, they were to lay aside all encumbrance. They were to be ready and willing to serve as redeemed and freed people. And the four things mentioned in Exodus 12, 11, which were to mark the dress of God's redeemed and freed people were sandals, a belt, a tunic, and a staff. And Jesus ties in the New Testament disciples with the Old Testament redeemed, freed people of God, making this point that as we journey, we're to remember we have been redeemed and we have been set free to serve our living, gracious, mighty God. These items are more than austerity, more than than paring down to the bare necessities. There's a redemptive element that we are to be reminded of as we engage in mission. I remember being shown into the room of a Christian around his new house and then to his study. And in his study were two massive Union Jacks This Christian wanted to emphasize and remind himself every day that he was British. He bought a British car. He works in the civil service. He's proud to be British. And the instructions, the precepts of Jesus here are emphasizing that we are to remind ourselves that we are redeemed That we are people who have been forgiven and set free by Christ's blood to serve our Redeemer God.
Don Whitney's been speaking about this, hasn't he, in our midweek meetings as we've been studying the spiritual discipline of serving. He has the illustration of God putting into our bank account $10 million every morning, but not allowing us into heaven after this life. And in that example, he wants us to realize the great things God has done for us. We would all choose to be in heaven at the end rather than having $10 million in our bank account every morning. This is the wonder of what God has done for us. And Jesus' point here is that as disciples of his, as those called to witness, we're to remind ourselves that we are redeemed servants of God, set free to serve. So perhaps it will be a text that you nail up to your wall and every morning you will read this. Or as your former minister did, Knox read it every night about his relationship with God. Perhaps it will be a message on your phone that you see every day and it reminds you that you are a redeemed servant of God, set free to serve and witness for your Lord. The provision of our mission. The precept of our mission. And lastly, the proclamation or the parts of our mission. In verses 11 to 13. What, what are we to do then? <laughs> this mission that they send them out on. Well, what, what are they to do? And, and what are we to do? And there's three parts to this here. There's, there's the message of repentance. There's the healing. There's the casting out of demons. That's the mission of the disciples. That there is the message of repentance in verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. This was the message of John in 1.4 of Jesus in 1.14. It's the message of the New Testament church in Acts 2.29 that people should repent and that is our message. It's abrasive. It's anti-cultural. It gets people's backs up. We're telling them they're wrong. They're sinners. They need to turn away from the lifestyle they have and come to God in humility and they don't like it. That is our message, that people should repent. Their mission was also one of action, that they were to, to heal. They include oil in theirs. Jesus doesn't use oil. They included oil. The rabbis promoted oil for hip pains, for skin diseases, for headaches, for wounds, Perhaps it was descriptive, tied into the Old Testament, of the joy of, that the oil brought. Here they go forth. With the message of repentance, with healing, and with casting out of demons. The kingdom of God, the joy of the kingdom, and the power of the kingdom is coming through the disciples. They're to expect hospitality. It was common in the Eastern world. People would invite strangers in and they were to expect hospitality. But 
If a town did not listen to them, then they were to shake off the dust, verse 11, that is on your feet as a testimony against them. They would go out with this mission of healing and preaching and casting out demons. But if it was refused, they were not to linger in that village or town. They were to to move on somewhere else. But what, what an incredible action that they would perform as they left that unbelieving town. They would shake off the dust from their feet. This was a well-known action within the time of Jesus. Any Jew who visited a a foreign country, as they entered into the the border of Palestine again, would stop for a moment and dust off their feet. They didn't want the, the dust of the Gentile nations on their feet, their pagan ways, their godlessness. They would stop at the border and dust off their feet from the unbelieving lands. This was the action Jesus told his disciples to take. When towns and villages refused to believe their message that he had given them to proclaim, they were to declare that that town was just like a pagan, godless nation. They were just as bad as those unbelievers whom the Jews despised for rejecting the message of Jesus. Preaching, but also healing. It's interesting to me, perhaps, to you as well, that the two dominant preachers within the evangelical church, Reformed Church, George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon, they both set up an orphanage alongside of their preaching ministry was a caring, compassionate ministry. This is the mission of Jesus. We're strong in this congregation on preaching. We have two services on the Sabbath day. We're not just a a morning service only congregation. We don't have a, a wee Bible study in the evening. We have two services on the Sabbath day because we realize the importance and centrality of preaching. And here it is in the mission of the disciples. They went out and they preached. But are we strong on compassion? In our life, in our family, there are many opportunities within our congregation to express this aspect of the mission of disciples. Contributing to the food bank, being involved in Noshin Natter, praying at prayer meetings for those who are sick and unwell are all opportunities for us to show compassion to those in need. This mission reminds us of a third and perhaps forgotten dimension to the mission of disciples, that there is satanic opposition to the work of the gospel. We're in a spiritual battle, and the powers and kingdom of darkness want us to fall out with one another. They want us to be discouraged in our Christian life. The mission of the disciples of Jesus is to put aside and, 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 and minimize the impact of the powers of darkness. 
There's a congregation we need to recognize and and realize and, and take on the spiritual battle surrounding our young people. I'm urging the elders as they, they think about bringing these 40 young people within our congregation into membership to do it with wisdom and love and care and generosity and encouragement. The deacons, as they think of renovating Lower Mary Street for the young people of our church to do this with enthusiasm and wisdom, the congregation as a whole, to pray for and love and encourage and provide an example for the young people of our church, realizing that the kingdom of darkness is after them and we're in a spiritual battle as we serve Christ. And engage in mission. So the provision for our mission, human and divine. The precepts for our mission, reminding us that we're redeemed servants. And and we have the, the, the parts of our mission. The preaching, the healing, the exorcism. As we reflect on this tremendous paragraph about discipleship and mission. We see that God's work is done by God's people. Jesus could have kept his disciples in the background and continued his method of leading them and preaching and them following him and him taking them aside and explaining more, but he doesn't. He breaks off from that pattern and he sends them out on their own. Defective, frail, flawed men. And no doubt they made many blunders on this mission. Some of them would have been too hard and the first whiff of rejection, they were out of the town. Some of them would have been too soft and they would have lingered there and reasoned with the people. But the principle stands that God's work is done by God's people. And each of us are to ask from our hearts today as Paul did, Lord, what do you want me to do? A second reflection is that none of us is indispensable. No minister, no elder, no deacon is indispensable. Here is this mission of 12 new preachers being sent out into Galilee. And it's in the context, as we'll see, of John the Baptist, the prominent preacher, being imprisoned and then beheaded. What a servant of Christ. One whom the people of God perhaps thought was indispensable, but he's taken out of the picture and others are raised up by Christ to serve and carry on the work of the kingdom. And so it is with us. None of us are indispensable as minister or elder or deacon or church member or church worker. Jesus provides for his church and raises up new servants to follow and serve and the work will carry on. Discipleship and mission. But perhaps you're not yet a disciple. And, and this paragraph has, has a solemn word for you. 
in verse 11, the whole drive behind this, the whole context in which this mission is set, is that there will be the day of judgment. This is why this whole idea of telling others about Jesus is so crucial, so important for us and for them is because there will be the day of judgment. And Jesus says the people who have heard about Jesus and rejected him will be judged more severely than Sodom and Gomorrah. What a judgment fell on them. But what a judgment will fall on you if you reject Jesus as Savior and as Lord.